Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. Today I'm popping on with a special, briefer, and timelier episode of More Than Politics. I suppose we could call it an emergency episode, one thrown together quickly to discuss an awful, unexpected event from just a few days ago. On Tuesday, August 4th, at around 6 p.m. local time, an incredible explosion ripped through the city of Beirut, Lebanon. It emanated from the city's port, where 2,700 tons of explosive material had been inadequately stored in the middle of a highly populated area for six years. At this point, the blast looks to have killed some 150 people and injured 4,000 more. It has caused damage to just about every part of the sprawling city, And, in a country of nearly 7 million people and a city of 2 million, it has left an estimated 300,000 people homeless. Here in the U.S., where we tend to have only a vague impression of the Middle East and few personal connections to the region, it can be easy to watch news coverage of events from there with glazed-over eyes. It can be easy to hear those unbelievably big numbers, 2,700 tons left for six years, injuring 4,000 and leaving 300,000 homeless, and still fail to grasp just how huge this particular event is. It can be easy to neatly tuck away this event into our vague impression of a Middle East filled with war and woe, and not stop to consider, to feel, this tragedy as deeply as we might if it had occurred in a place that felt more familiar to us. But I think some context can help. So yesterday I sat down for another conversation with my friend Dr. J. Kristen Urban, who is Professor Emerita from Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where she taught in the political science department for more than 25 years. Dr. Urban taught a variety of courses related to international, Middle East, and African politics, as well as courses on conflict, peace, security, justice, and human rights. She undertook her doctoral fieldwork in Israel-Palestine, She has spent time in Russia, Romania, Italy, Turkey, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. And she was 2003-04 Senior Fulbright Scholar to Bahrain. This emergency episode happens to interrupt a longer, two-part conversation I had with Dr. Urban at the end of July about the current state of the U.S. on the world stage. The first part, published as last week's episode, covers the international developments that since the end of the Second World War, has set that stage. The second will be published next week. It will cover the Obama administration through the current moment, and will include some thoughts on where we might be heading. I'm so grateful to Dr. Urban for her willingness to chat with me again, so soon after recording our longer conversation. This emergency conversation was recorded on August 7th. All right. Well, Kristen, thank you for coming back again so soon. Thank you, Julie. Yeah. I had not anticipated having you back so quickly, but of course, current events are what current events are. And we had a big event this week, a huge explosion in Lebanon that has killed well over 100 people and injured more than 4,000. And I thought it would be helpful to my listeners if we could just give them an idea of what scenario this explosion happened in to give them an understanding 
of Lebanon's really interesting history and structure and uh, the complexity, the complexity of the situation. Yeah. Right. The complexity and difficulty of the situation that this has happened in. Um, I want to say just to provide a sort of some background to Americans, I think generally a lot of Americans, when they consider the Middle East, sort of lump it all together and they think of Saudi Arabia or Syria or something like that. Um, But one thing to recognize is that in Islam, there are two major sects, sort of how we Christians would uh, recognize the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism. There are two major sects of Islam, Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. And they have their own very interesting stories, uh, but there's a there's a big difference between the two. Um, some countries in the Middle East are predominantly Sunni, some are predominantly Shia, and some have a mix of both. And some have a mix of both in addition to having Christians and Jews and people of other sects. So Lebanon is interesting because it has Sunni, Shia, and Christian. And indeed, it has the largest Christian population in the Middle East. So the situation there is different on the sectarian front than it is in a country like uh, like Saudi Arabia or Iran. Absolutely. That's true. So could you start off by telling us about the history of Lebanon? Oh, sure, sure. Um, well, Lebanon, uh, before the... Uh, during the Ottoman period and before World War I, uh, Lebanon was part of the Ottoman territory and uh, actually came under the Syrian source ju- jurisdiction. Um, the French were in Beirut and Syria, what is today Syria and Lebanon, probably a hundred years before the first, you know, the first World War. Um, so after World War One, the French were given a mandate by the League of Nations to sort of govern and oversee both Syria and Lebanon and teach them how to govern. And um, so a lot of the issues stem from that period, uh, because under the French, uh, there was a census taken in 1932 And at that time, it said there were about 150,000 people. The population was about 150,000, of which 54% were Maronite Christians. Maronite Christians are Mm. like Catholics. Uh, There are also Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and other kinds of Christians there. But but the Maronite were were the largest number. They were also the big businessmen. Uh, They also do alcohol and dancing and fancy European stuff. Okay. So they create uh, this little Switzerland area, basically. Uh, So 54% were Maronite Christians, 22% were Sunnis, and 20% were Shia. So the, uh, when independence was granted, uh, they, they established what was called the National Pact in 1943, And it was uh, what we call a confessional system of democracy. Um, It's similar to the way the Benelux countries in Europe are governed because they have minorities Mm. of different groups. And Benelux is Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Uh, they've, They've also got small populations in there. 
and your representation is proportional to your population, okay, the percentage of your population. So in this, the Maronites then were given the president. The president is always a Maronite. And at that time, the, pre- the position of the president was very powerful. Uh, the prime minister was always a Sunni, and the speaker of the house was always a Shia. And the seats in their assembly, their legislature, um, were, pre- were apportioned uh, six Christians per five Muslims. So the Christians were always in authority. They were always in power. Um, we'll, we can talk a little bit later about these, this civil war, but this there has never been another census, <laughs> okay? Ah. And, uh, and so when the, the civil war, which was from 75 to 89, it was largely over this disproportion because by now the Muslims were a much greater population. The Christians were less and yet the Christians still ran the show. Okay. And, right. um, that's interesting. I didn't realize this divide, this confessional system was so old. I, yeah. I had sort of yeah. thought it was a reaction to the civil war. I didn't realize it no. was present. Back into no. the thirty, and and when the Taif Accords, uh, the the Taif Agreement was reached uh, that ended the Civil War, they had to use um, American CIA estimates because we have always had people in counting, you know, in uh, in challenging mm. situations, and uh, they used the CIA estimates, which uh, had the 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 Shia were at forty one percent. By then, uh, the Maronites were at you know about twenty five percent, and the the Sunnis were somewhere in the in the middle there, um, uh, and almost so a flip then everything had flipped. So the the system that they have in place now still has the Maronite having the the president is a Maronite, but the the presidential powers have been reduced significantly. Mm. Um, and the the uh, representation in the assembly is now one to one. So mm. um, the Muslims are better represented then. So uh, that was supposed to solve things, but but governance in the past 20 years hasn't been that great either. So and mm-hmm. and so nobody is working for the people uh the the leadership as what happens in many um authorit- well this is a democratic system but uh in throughout the middle east you see uh a number of leaders basically working for themselves and their families and that's what has happened in uh in this situation too so mm-hmm. so uh other events that have really affected what goes on in Lebanon has been the Israeli statehood in 1948. Um, during the war, the year after that, almost a million Palestinians flee, and a number of them, like over half of them, wind up in southern Lebanon. So there's this hmm. huge Palestinian population in southern Lebanon. Then we have Syria sending its troops in uh, just because Syria has always felt they should have control in Lebanon, that there should never have been a Lebanon. Okay. Mm. Um, and, uh, and those troops were in there from the 70s until 2005. Israel sent troops in in 82. They didn't leave until 2000. 
And then we have the war in Iraq, the American-led war in Iraq, and you get uh, people from Iraq fleeing into Lebanon. You have the Iranian revolution in 1979, and Iran then begins supporting Shia, okay, because Iran is predominantly Shia, and it supports the Hezbollah, which the U.S. views as a terrorist organization. You have Hamas. You have uh, lots of different groups that are all sectarian. So you have this whole mishmash. Yeah, and Hamas is Sunni, is that correct? Hamas is Sunni, that is correct. Okay. And it's because Palestinians are Sunni. They're not they're right, not Shia. right, right. And then you have um, in 1970, up until 70, the Palestinian leadership, the PLO leadership, had been residing in Jordan and then attacking Israel across that border. And in 1970, Jordan kicks them out. They go to Beirut. And so then you get the PLO in Beirut as well. And uh, so, you know, of all the countries in the world. Which is also Sunni, but in opposition to Hamas, right? Uh, yeah, Hamas, right, right, right. Because Hamas is, is a religiously based, uh, group. Uh, this was a secular group under Arafat. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. All right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, when this explosion occurs, there's already this, you know, really confusing array of, of everybody that's in there. They have had one of the worst years that they have ever had economically, food insecurity, there's issues with water. Uh, This is a port which connects them with the outside world. I mean, that's their Mm -hmm. lifeline. And 80% of their food, they import a ton of food. All Mm. their grains come through there. And all the the granaries, if you saw any videos or maps of this explosion, the granaries and the, you know, the, um, the grain, the towers, you know, the hold the grain, what do you call mm-hmm. those, the granaries? Silos, or I don't silos, know what they call them thank on a port. You. <laughs> I'm only familiar <laughs> with farms. So. Yes, yeah, silos is, is a good word, right. Um, and so that's all in the same area. You know, it, it, it was just like a perfect storm. Right, I think it was especially heartbreaking given, um, you know, besides all the loss of life and destruction of, of um, buildings, I think it was especially heartbreaking to see that so much wheat yeah, had gone up in flames. Oh, considering all of, all the, of the, the, the food shortages. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and water, all the infrastructure is gone. There's no electricity. Uh, Three hundred thousand people are have lost their homes. Everything's just been completely flattened. It was twenty seven hundred tons of ammonium nitrate, and wow, you know if uh, the Oklahoma bombing, uh, that was two tons, and it brought down you know a whole square mile block, you know, so this is 2,700 tons. I mean, that's mm-hmm. it's just, it's just uh, un- unbelievable. The, the way that it happened is also a reflection of governance. Um, the, the ammonium nitrate arrived on a Moldovan flagged ship, which was named the, the Rosas, and it entered Beirut because it was having technical problems. It was traveling from Georgia in in the Russian area, Georgia Mm -hmm. to Mozambique. And so it stopped here because it had problems. Um, The the ship was inspected and then banned from leaving 
so you know why would it be banned from leaving uh, instead of just fixed um clearly somebody wants to keep it i guess um mm -hmm. its owners abandoned it and then a judge ordered that the cargo be stored in the port for safekeeping which is pretty ironic mm. In a major population center. Exactly. Right. Uh, the port manager apparently wrote to the judiciary a number of times over the intervening years, because we're talking like six years or something, um, asking that the material either be exported or sold, and he was completely ignored. So, you know, there isn't government really working. So, and then this happens, you know, so there's heads that are going to roll everywhere, um, but Everybody is, is, you know, you wouldn't think the judiciary would be in the middle of this, but, uh, but even the judiciary is, uh, is, is part of this, this problem. Mm. Uh, Rami Khouri, who is uh, at the American University in Beirut, um, in an interview this week, said that it was 3.5 on the Richter scale and was wow. felt as, as far as Cyprus, okay, it was a hundred square miles around it, this explosion was felt, but it was a 9.0 on the political scale. He feels that the aftershocks politically are going to be enormous. And when, um, when the French president, uh, Manuel Macron visited uh, yesterday, the people, he was right in the middle of, of the people, you know, walking. I don't know if anybody saw the, the footage on that, but he was like right in the, surrounded by everybody with their masks on because, of course, COVID is in the middle of this as well. Mm -hmm. And and they're saying, we desperately need international aid. Do not, do not, do not give it to our government. Uh, give it to the non-governmental organizations because our government will just put it in their own pockets. And he called this the pauperization of Lebanon citizens, that governance the past 20 years um, has only produced, you know, consistent decline in education, in jobs, in forms of other forms of security that, you know, the different various governments uh, that have come in and out have not served the Lebanon people. Their right. And even before the pandemic, there were a series of pretty big protests in Lebanon, weren't there, against corruption in the government? Right. There there were. And even in after Syria, after the Syrian troops left in 2005, there was the what they called the Cedar Revolution. Um, and uh Everyone was so hopeful. You know, I remember seeing, you know, it's like, thank God, now we can govern ourselves, you know. And then you have, you know, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and all of those issues and ISIS and everything uh, kind of tearing Lebanon apart. Even yeah. And then the collapse of Syria. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, it, there was a um, pushback last year. They, they had a new government installed last year. Um, but aside from Macron, there were no other there were no other leaders walking out among the people looking at things. None of, mm. not, not the Maronites, not the Sunnis, not the Shia, not, none of those wow. leaders. Um, so, it, you know, everybody is, has been putting stuff in their own pockets for their own 
their own reasons, their own interests, their own people. And, and the, you know, the infrastructure has not been maintained. Schools have suffered. Electricity, people only can have power like two hours a day. Uh, water now, potable water, you know, that, you know, you can see other issues. And of course, as you mentioned, COVID was already uh, putting pressure on hospitals and, and things like that. So right. yeah, Lebanon used to be uh, what was when I was a kid. I mean, I, I grew up in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, but I remember coming home one time, I was maybe 12 or 14. We stopped in Beirut and it was when it was still the Switzerland, you know, of the Middle East. And that was where all the elite had their country homes the American University of Beirut um, was established in 1866, um, and that was like the gem of education in the Middle East. Almost all of modern-day rulers, uh, many of them were educated in the American system there, mm. uh, the mm. ones that are like in the 40s, 40-year-olds, 50s. I, I'm not, I can't say anything about now uh, because they travel to England and other places. But for, for years and years, the American University in Beirut was the shining star. And it had, you know, uh, the American education system, which taught critical thinking and, you know, all of, all of those kinds of things, uh, mm-hmm. democratic governance and, and things like that. So, uh, so at, you know, in the sixties, Lebanon was still this beautiful place. Uh, Beirut was a beautiful place. We, I remember we were at a cafe on the Mediterranean and had what now I know is shawarma. I didn't know what it was (laughs) called then, you know, it was like, oh my God, this is so good. You know, um, we had just come from Bangladesh, which also has very good cuisine, but very different than that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I just remember how beautiful it was and walking in the bazaars and all of that is gone now. Um, wow. it's, it's just very tragic. Wow. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the Civil War? The Civil War um, started officially in 1975, but by the 70s, there are well, Syria already had come in. So that, you know, that, that was complicating things. You have the Palestinians, the PLO that has moved in, okay. Uh, but amongst amongst the Lebanese, the rise in the in the Muslim population was causing issues with the Christians being in control of everything, and so this was kind of the pushback that you know started happening early in the seventies, and then in seventy five, it it really broke out. Um, during this period, you also have the PLO, as I mentioned, you know, that move into Beirut. You have the Israelis um, enter. They, they, it's a, a, military, uh, a, a military attack. Um, they come in in 82 and stay until 2000. And um, and so that you've got the Israeli soldiers, you've got the Palestinians, you've got the the militias from each of the three groups in Lebanon, the Phalangists, which are Christian, the Amal, which is the Sunni, and then Hezbollah, which is the Shia. 
and all of these are fighting. I mean, it's 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 tragic, and everybody is living in the shadow of this for almost twenty years. You know, fifteen years anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's wow. It's devastating to a whole generation. Right. I was going to say I'm 41, so that would have been like my whole childhood. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you get then a groups of uh, there have been novels that have been written, you know, by people that are uh, that were living through this, and in the different houses, you know, everybody is in flats uh, in, mm-hmm. in the cities. Excuse me, in apartments, and you know, the children, what do you do with the children? The men are all off fighting and what do you do with the children? And the women are constantly caught in trying to protect children and help life to go on as normal and providing safe passage. And you never know what's going to happen next. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there are explosions all around you, like the civil war now in Syria, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I heard an interesting interview last night on the news. They were talking to a woman, probably my, my generation. And she said that when, after the explosion happened the other day, her father just sprang into action. He knew what to do to secure parts of the room so that they didn't um, collapse yeah. farther, how to how to tape up a window so that if it fell, it didn't shatter. Like he he had all these skills wow. that he wow. had learned through years yeah. of fighting um, yeah. that yeah. he just sprung into action and started doing these things. And she was sort of dumbfounded because she didn't feel yeah. equipped to deal with the situation right. in the way he did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in a way, well, it was very fortunate, but, but it's also a sad kind of like Oh, it's so sad you know? that you should have those skills. Yeah. yeah that you should yeah, be yeah. acquainted enough with the idea of your windows blowing in it's, that you should yeah. know how to deal with the situation. Yeah. 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 I, uh, a whole different conflict, Northern Ireland, we had a couple people from one of the peace institutes in Belfast uh, come to our university a number of years ago, they spoke to students and we had workshops and things like that. But, uh, but when I was taking them out, you know, to, for meals and things, he always sat with his back to the wall, you know, and, mm. and I was like giving him a, a bad time. He, he was IRA at one time. And he said, Oh no, you know, this is just something I, you know, from growing up with the troubles, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I learned you, you never, you never let yourself be vulnerable, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, it becomes a way mm. of life almost. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and for women and children as, as well. Yeah. It's uh, right. It's, it's an assassinations that happens frequently. You know, you get your leadership uh, assassinated that happened with the president, uh, Jemayel, in 2005, I think. Right. I, you know, after the wave of school shootings here in the U.S., you know, I heard so many people say, oh, we we shouldn't have to worry about taking these sorts of precautions, sending our yeah. kids to school. And that is yeah. absolutely right. We should not have to worry about it. But I always, my next thought was always, but we're so fortunate that we've never had to think we're about blessed. these kinds of precautions before. <laughs> there are so many people through the yeah. world who yeah. are living in a constant state of violence or war, and yes. they are having to map out strategies for their safety every day of their lives that we have been every lucky day. never to have to worry about. Yeah. And after those 
things started happening, I started to think about how I was in public, in public spaces in a way that I never had before. I went, as I took my kids to a mall, I looked around to see where the exits were. I just... I was yeah. more aware of my surroundings because I was more aware of the potential yeah, yeah. for violence. Necessity. And we've been really lucky in our country not to have to worry about that in in many of our communities. Yeah. Some are different. Some have had to yeah. worry about that yeah. kind of thing for a long time. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Or or access to water, you know. I mean, even we don't mm-hmm. have to go out and carry carry water from distances and and put ourselves in harm's way uh, which does happen in situations like this you know where right. you have to go out um, during bosnia similar kinds of things uh you know just to get water or bread or milk or something uh somebody has to put themselves in in harm's way crossing open terrain you know right you have to take risks just to secure the necessities Exactly. Yeah. Um, It's not that kind of risk right now, I think, in Lebanon. Um, Mm -hmm. And this might be it it might be kind of a moment where things are really going to change because it's so apparent that nobody in the government was able to prevent or ameliorate this. Mm -hmm. Um, And also there's so much to do and people are going to have to work together. So it's been you know, interesting to see photos of people sweeping the streets together, right. you know, yeah. in all yeah. different kinds of clothing, um, yeah. all wearing masks. My son saw a picture yeah. I was looking at of people sweeping with masks on. Uh-huh. And I said, remember, they have the coronavirus there, too. So they're yeah. trying to be careful. And he said, yes, and also the dust. The masks oh, will sure. help against the dust. Yeah. And I said, you know, I think you're right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it, it will be interesting. And Macron seems to be the person who, along with the European Union, maybe is going to uh, uh, going to be addressing this. Uh, I will say something that, you know, it, it is sad that in America, we don't know who these countries are and who the leadership is. Even, however, our State Department when when the Secretary of State Pompeo called, he called the former, the former president. <laughs> he didn't know who the president oh, was goodness. now. That's that should be humiliating to to Americans. Wow, you know? I hadn't heard the, that. The, yes, yes, uh, and and it was you know people see that and they go, oh my God, you know who is America anymore? You know, yeah, yes, America's let the French out. back in, wow. you know. Yeah, yeah. So he called Hariri, uh, who's the former, the former guy, um, mm. rather than uh, Michel Aoun, who's the president now. So, anyway, strange, strange, strange State Department at the moment. Wow. <laughs> so, so it's not just normal Americans, you know. It's unfortunately, right. you know, even. Uh, some of the uh, political class, right? The, some of the political class, yeah. The uh, the people in you know in the uh, the people who work all the time in the State Department who are you know the, um, the not career the, professionals, the career professionals, right? They in the Middle East desk there, they would totally know, you know, right? Um, uh, but uh, but they weren't apparently they weren't asked asked, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, contacted, yeah. So anyway, yeah, just a right. little side note there. Um, oh, so, that's interesting. Uh, so it's important for all of us, I think, in a global 
world, you know, to at least be aware of the realities, you know, that are going on. Uh, and, and also mm-hmm. originally it was, our, our president said that it was a bomb and without checking with anybody, you know, the Pentagon, no intelligence people had told him that. Um, but he just said, no, it's, it's a bomb. It's, it, it's a bomb, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, it wasn't at all. Uh, it, you know, it was, bad storage facilities, you know, and um, uh, apparently there was a fireworks, fireworks manufacturing place not too far from this. And mm. what Rami Khuri said was that some things caught on fire there, something exploded there, and the firemen put them, put it out, but didn't get all the embers. And that's what then... Uh, caused this so so it was a series of of bad things uh, although they shouldn't have been stored there to begin with you know so right well i'm sure we'll learn more as investigations take place but um yeah. it's all or just not. so sad <laughs> or not yeah <laughs> it I may get so. up. who knows that's true but uh but anyway hopefully we'll see changes in the next you know uh in the next few a couple of years you know maybe uh right. maybe this will be a a Taif Accord kind of moment where, okay, let's reset. Uh, we we want real right. democracy. We want governments that actually represent us. Right. This is well more than a straw that could break a camel's back. So. Exactly. Exactly. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think it's so helpful when something like this happens to get a little bit more context and understand the situation in which it occurred. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, you are welcome. And thank you for taking that initiative. I, I applaud that. That's, that's super. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh-huh. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this emergency podcast conversation with Dr. J. Kristen Urban. I hope it helped you to better understand the context in which the tragedy of the Beirut explosion occurred. I'll put links to a couple of helpful news videos and articles about the explosion in the show notes. I'll also include links to some reputable charitable organizations, which are on the ground working to help the people of Lebanon withstand this crisis. I hope you'll consider donating to them. I also hope, if you're the praying type, that you'll join me in praying for the people of Lebanon. Dear Lord, please bless the people of Lebanon. Please bless the people of Beirut. Bless those who are shaken. Bless those who wonder how they'll get through tomorrow, who worry for the future of their country. Bless those who are trying to pick up the pieces. Bless those of all faiths and classes, Lord. Help them to see you in one another. Help them to overcome their divisions to work together to rebuild their country. Bless us, Lord, who watch from afar. Help us to see you in them. Help our leaders to lead, and lead us, Lord, to help. Lord, help this trial be an occasion for renewal. Renew the country of Lebanon. Renew the city of Beirut. Renew its people your beloved sons and daughters. Lord, bless those who have been left homeless by this explosion. Heal those who have been injured. Bless those who were killed by the blast, Lord, 
and comfort those who mourn them. St. George, patron of Beirut, please pray for your city. St. Charbel Makhlouf, son of Lebanon, please pray for your people. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.